welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome on to Searching for Mana, Sean. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to have you on. Uh, fuller introduction. Sean Lee is the Chief Executive Officer with the Algorand Foundation. Um, and uh, we had previously uh, Andrea from Eterna Capital on the Searching for Mana show, um, who is one of the early, and Sean will explain this in, in, in more detail, one of the early investors, and uh, they, they collaborated on an accelerator um, for, the, um, for the community. So uh, really excited to have you on the show because I really enjoyed um, getting to know what Andrea was all about, and he was very excited about Algorand. And since then, um, we're right now, 2021, um, at the end of the year. Uh, it's so exciting. The space, the blockchain space, the crypto space, there's user cases with NFT. Um, really feels like it's, um, it's really getting started. So um, it'd be really kind of you, Sean, if you could introduce to the audience uh, who you are and what the Algorand Foundation is all about and what they're up to now, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So, so as uh, as you mentioned earlier, I, I run the Algorand Foundation globally. Uh, I am based out of Hong Kong, uh, but the the project is what was really the the brainchild of uh, a Turing Award winner, computer scientist uh, Silvio Michali, who's our founder. Uh, Silvio, a few years ago, kind of looked at the blockchain space. And he looks at the, both the, the technologies, the evolution, uh, and also the promise that it can bring. And he thought a lot of the research uh, that he'd been doing for many years uh, from MIT, you know, can can really bring upon a, a different type of technology, a different type of platform uh, that solves what the industry at the time and and still does uh, calls the blockchain trilemma. And, and then that is having a protocol that is both fast, scalable, secure, and also decentralized. And the last part is particularly difficult to achieve. And I'll probably go into that a little bit more later on. So a few years ago, uh, him and a number of early investors uh, kind of pulled together the resources to go start to build uh, the concept into a reality. And in that turned into the Algram protocol, uh, which was launched on June 19th in 2019. So that's roughly about two and a half years uh, since we have gone live uh, as a project. And just to give the audience a sense of where we are, uh, we are one of the top layer one protocols. Layer one means it's the, the base infrastructure uh, from, a, from a blockchain perspective. Uh, and by being a top uh, blockchain, what does that mean? That means our assets, our crypto native assets, uh, in our case, it's called the ELGO, is one of the top ranked. Um, assets uh, based on coin market cap. Uh, what that also means is that on from an on-chain transaction perspective, uh, we average more than 2 million transactions per day, which also happens to be one of the fastest uh, and most transacted chains out there. And if you think about the, the world of blockchain, if you can build the best tech, but if no one's using it and there's no transaction running on it, then you're just basically a super highway that looks fancy, and but there's no cars, right? So, so part of what we do uh, as a layer one protocol is we continue to work on building out our ecosystem, attract more projects to build on Algorand, create additional economic value that are being run on chain, uh, and then to be able to kind of blur the line between this kind of fancy crypto world that all of us are fascinated by, especially this year, but also the traditional where there are real industry use cases and where the lines kind of bring between the two. Sure, uh, and those so- are... Many of the projects that we run uh, within the foundation here. Thank you so much. And so, mm-hmm. if part of the remit is attracting um, projects to the ecosystem mm-hmm. and its competitive space, and um, when, when we were talking just in brief before the show, um, I liked how you expressed you don't want to 
um, you know, differentiate competitively. You feel that the space is so early on that it's all um, very positive and there's enough space for all the different projects. So um, mm-hmm. I, I, I respect that. But nonetheless, when you're trying to attract a project, mm-hmm. what, what, if you were pitching us and differentiating, how would sure. you do that? Yeah. So, so I want to qu- clarify something. I, uh, when I said we, we, I don't like to compete, I, I, I think I meant, um, you know, we, we are in the competing world. I mean, every industry, every company is competing, you know, against each other one, one, or, one way or the other. Uh, but, but I, I think a lot of the, the key aspect of what I was trying to drive towards is this is a, a very new space still. I mean, if you think about it, blockchain really has been only around for about 10 years, right? And most of the activities that have been happening is over the last probably three, four or five years max, right? So if you think about it that way, I, I, I like to think all of us that are in the space, whether we're competitors or not, uh, it's a rising sea lift all boats uh, type of scenario, right? Yes. As the industry continue to get more mainstream, uh, we are all doing our part to contribute to it. And part of that actually has to do with educating uh, the general public, educating the industries and educating the regulators uh, around the potential of the technologies, uh, the pitfall of the technology potentially, uh, and then also where it can go uh, in, in a broader sense. So that's kind of what I meant from a competitive landscape perspective. Now, you brought up a very good point about, you know, when someone comes to us and say, hey, I've got a project and I'm looking for a chain, a protocol to build on, uh, what would we, in a sense, sell them on, right? Yep. Uh, it, I don't like to use that term because everything is also open source, but, you know, you still have to kind of pitch some of the, the capabilities. And, and I'd like, probably like to say kind of four main points. Uh, I'd like to make it a little bit simpler. The first thing is we are one of the greenest chain out there. Uh, carbon neutrality to us is by design. Um, our energy footprint is so low that uh, many have looked at our, our network in terms of the throughput that we can provide and in terms of some of the transactional volumes that I've shared with you earlier. And they're looking and thinking, how, how were you able to do that? Well, we're able to do that because the technology is designed by a Turing Award winner, right? And that's the whole notion of what he's bringing his decades of research into making this thing as energy uh, as as you know, as as less intensive as possible, while still driving the performance that it that it has. Sure. So, to 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 somebody mm-hmm. who um, now I'm fa- I'm fascinated in that, but would like to understand mm-hmm. in um, kind of simple language how. So you know, we're not going to talk mm-hmm. about the algorithm or the research necessarily. Right. Practically right. speaking, where are some of the blockchains uh, like Bitcoin very uh, inefficient, and mm-hmm. there's been, um, you know, obviously um, bad speculation about. Therefore, as it gets bigger, how that can affect the environment. Mm-hmm. And then you guys sound like you're on the complete other end. Why, right. practically speaking? Yeah, yeah. So at the highest level, um, blockchain uh, kind of come in two flavors. Mostly, uh, there are proof of work uh, blockchains that that are. Bitcoin, Ethereum are, are probably the two primary example of those. Uh, and then there are others that are proof of stick, uh, which Algren is one of. Uh, proof of work means that there are miners that needs to solve very complex cryptographic puzzles uh, in order to win the chance to approve the next block uh, and thereby earning the transaction fees uh, along with solving that you know, or, or approving that block. And, and, and essentially think about it as a decentralized system like a bank, uh, but a decentralized banking system. Yeah. So these different uh, miners are competing to basically approve a transaction so that it becomes uh, leg- uh, it, it becomes viewable on a ledger. And that exercise by itself is very energy consuming. Now, I need to say something though, right? Uh, those that say the Bitcoins of the world are are really you know, consuming a lot of energy, that is true. But the reality is most of that energy is also using renew- renewable sources. And I feel like there's a there's a there's some truth in terms of how these networks are being run that the general public should know as well. That aside, the proof of stick networks do not require any type of mining. The, the, the transactional aspects is actually be, uh, done based on the consensus mechanism that each one of the pro- protocol um, you know, enables. Uh, and ours is run in a way that, uh, that, that champions this notion of variable, ver- verifiable random function. And that's one of the key topics that Silvio kind of you know, built his entire thesis around. And, and that is rather than having a number of people 
uh, think a bank, right? Think a, a closed network that is always the one that you go to to approve something, right? So you know exactly who they are, where they are, and so on and so forth. Obviously, that has some security, uh, you know, consideration that needs to be kept in mind. Um, our design, our consensus bank mechanism allows for the network to actually randomly select people to approve that transaction, right? And because of that randomness, you actually have no idea who's who's going to be selected in the network and thereby making it extremely secure. And, and that's kind of the, the, the technical differences uh, that, that we bring into the notion. And look, many protocols do things differently. Uh, I think we are very proud of the way we have done things because uh, of the te technicality, but also in terms of where this whole technology is going, uh, it just needs to be more decentralized, more secure, and more you know more performing. And having that as a basis uh, set us up as a, in in terms of the 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 future, in terms of where we're going, uh, give us a a very good um, you know foundation to build on. Um, so so I mentioned four things, right? The the carbon neutrality. Uh, the second aspect is this 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 notion where you know we can process many you know transactions uh, uh, per second. You know, and, and many proof of uh, proof of stake uh, network can 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 pr pretty much have a very good performance as well. But also, what we're most proud of is you can process a transaction very quickly, but you need to be able to settle that transaction uh, e e even faster, right? Because if you think about it, you could process it, but if it's in the queue and it's not being settled, then the the asset haven't changed hands yet. So if I'm sending you some money, Lloyd, and I can say, hey, we can process that very quickly and it'll go through, you know, a thousand, uh, you know, one thousand of a second that's being processed. But if it takes half an hour to get to you, which, by the way, is already super, you know, super good in the conventional banking world. But if I tell you in the blockchain world, it comes to, it goes to you in 30 minutes, you're like, wow, that's a slow chain, right? So our settlement speed is roughly around four seconds right now and going down to two seconds. So again, what does that mean? I can send you a piece of asset whether it is monetary value or an NFT that represents some physical assets as well, I can send you that proof and that transaction and it will settle in two, in two to four seconds. Yep. That's how fast we are, right? So that obviously have a lot of financial services implication as it relates to that. So that's the second thing. The third thing is our transaction cost. Uh, I'm sure those, of, uh, those in the audience that have read a lot of the, the kind of gas fee, this notion of a gas fee, right? Uh, in the Ethereum ecosystem, with the prices going through the roof, uh, the gas fee is also ridiculously expensive. Yeah. So if you're sending someone $100 and it costs them $50 to send it, does that even make sense? It doesn't mean any anymore, right? Uh, so the gas fee aspect becomes very, extremely important. And our gas fee, our transaction fee, so to speak, uh, has been designed to be at 0.001 algo, which is our native token. Uh, and the today's price, that's a fraction of a penny. Uh, so it's a, it costs a fraction of a penny to send a transaction from one party to another. On that point, Sean, um, mm -hmm. as you got more, um, more users, albeit you've already got a really great flow, but as you got more, would, would that price mm -hmm. go up or would it always track at the same? It will always track at the same denomination, which is 0.001 algo. Uh, so if as the algo price appreciates, if it does, then yes, it will. The transaction fee will go up. But let's take an example. But it's let's still it's still very low compared times. to two 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 hundred exactly. euros right now on Ethereum, for instance. Exactly, yeah. it goes up a hundred times. It's still a penny, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the that's a core advantage, and that's why also many of the stablecoin issuers have been working with us. Uh, because of the volume and flow that they have and, and giving the, the transaction throughput, the settlement speed, and also the cost per transaction, it just makes a lot of sense yeah. uh, as that uh, infrastructure. So that's the third aspect. Yeah. Uh, and then the very last aspect is also very important, especially in the space of NFTs. And that is in the blockchain world, uh, there's this notion of forking, F-O-R-K, forking, yeah. right? So. Uh, if the protocol goes in a certain direction and something needs to be upgraded, but it can't be entirely upgraded in a certain way, then there's a, a, a fork. So now there's a new new capabilities being uh, being made available in the fork, but not on the main chain and so on and so forth. Think about it like a like a subway map almost, right? It can kind of keep branching out. Uh, what's the what's the uh, problem with that? Well, that the problem is if there's a piece of asset that was created on the original chain it may not be able to be transacted 
without additional work uh, on the new chains or the side chains or the branches uh, that has forked out. Um, our chain from day one has been designed to be unforkable. It almost sounds very strange in English, um, but that means it's always the single chain the entire time. So whatever that you mint or created and piece of asset on Algorand, it will always be able to transact on the same chain. Uh, that by itself has a lot of value, especially in the space in the space of uh, NFTs. I mean, think about it. If you someone were to mint or create a synthet synthetic version of the Mona Lisa uh, that represent the actual Mona Lisa, you don't want that Mona Lisa to have multiple copies uh, living on different chains, having to be able to rectify itself later on. You want to have one single copy or a fractional copy of it, but still representing the real thing. So I think this unforkability uh, of the Algorand blockchain really, again, brings a lot of attention to to many yeah. of the um, the projects in the space. And I think um, perhaps some of the what just feels like rational logic on those four different points is because um, you know Phil and you guys came to this slightly later, so you got to look at mm. what had been designed in two thousand and eleven uh, mm -hmm. and think, well, actually now what would be the, the the preferred refined version of that from user case mm -hmm. perspectives. And so it sounds very logical how you explain it, Sean. Um, with um, filling in the, the view for the audience of, of the company. So it's the Algorand Foundation. Could you just speak a little bit about, and, and this is very typical, but just for anybody mm. who hasn't heard it before, why it's a foundation? Right, right. So. Uh, if you think about it, right, the blockchain by itself is a technology, but the crypto assets created on top is beyond a technology. It creates an economic model that allows companies like ours, as well as companies that are building on Algorand uh, or a blockchain protocol, to be able to create economic value on their own. So, so it's no longer just a technology. It is also uh, monetary value that are being created. So if you think about those two things, then you typically would need to have different type of companies or entities uh, that are, act as the custodian of both the technology uh, as well as the asset itself. So if you think about the, the Algorand ecosystem, uh, I mentioned our founder, Sylvia McCallie, he, uh, he leads the Algorand Inc., which is the technology arm, uh, and also the commercial arm. Right, so they take the technology to continue to develop on top of it. And they're also working with uh, corporates and, and various different industry players to leverage the technologies to do different use cases and applications. Right, so That's the remit uh, of the company, so to speak. And the company is based predominantly in the US. I run the foundation. So what do we do? We are predominantly focusing on taking the open source technology that have been developed and working with our ecosystem partners and working with the developers, the grassroots developers at large, and trying to innovate on top of it, whether it has to do with the infrastructure aspect or the tooling aspect or the applications and use cases that people just want to build new startups around, but truly around the world. So my, my foundation actually have staff that are across 13 or 14 countries. Uh, I'm losing count now. And we have ambassadors and champions that are literally all around, you know, covering all major time zones. And the goal is to be able to engage at the grassroots with the, with the developers and also with the VCs where they have interest in investing into companies that are building on Algorand. And so, so our remit is a little bit different. Our remit is really trying to bring adoption, create economic value, but also act as that governance arm in terms of how this ecosystem is, is evolving. And that is kind of the pillars uh, at which my team operates around. Really exciting. Um, so just to change the gears now, because it's given us a really good understanding of what's going on today and um, the scale and the, the user cases and the differentiations. Um, ask you, Sean, if you can think of really as early as possible, when you first started to think and form what type of a career you, you, you wanted? Uh, well, that probably needs to go back a little bit. Uh, yeah, so, so I started my career. So actually, first of all, uh, I studied computer science uh, in college. So I've always been a technologist and I continue to think of myself as a technologist. 
uh, I think technology fascinates me because I see it as an enabler uh, towards the the new capabilities that we can drive towards in society. So so I've always been fascinated with that, and I, I think I've also been very lucky because as I you know graduated from universities and and I got into the the industry, I, I happened to hit around the time when the internet started to become a reality, right? Now, if you think back, you know, decades before the internet has always kind of been around there, but it's, you know, being used by scientists and academics and government agencies to trans to 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 transmit information. But, you know, back, back in the, the mid 90s, that's when internet businesses uh, really started to take shape. And I was able to start my career kind of participating uh, in that phase. And you could see how dramatically the internet or the notion of the internet have driven various different businesses uh, either from a propelling, you know, kind of growth perspective or potentially also killing some industries as well, right? And we've all seen plenty of examples in that regard. So I think I've been very lucky to kind of ride that wave. And, and some people ask me, you know, what do you consider blockchain and IoT and, and cryptocurrency? You know, is that internet 3.0, 4.0, whatever it is? I look at it as kind of the fourth wave, right? So maybe I can share that um, here. I look at the internet as the first wave. That's when different companies start to think about different business ideas that eventually now are becoming some of the largest companies in the world, right? So you could see the marketplaces kind of ticking into shape and, and so on and so forth. Then you go into the 2000s and you, you get the social networks and you get e-commerce sites. That's now taking the retail industry. It's taking the information sharing industry and completely turning it upside down. Right. So so you, you start to get kind of that notion where it's not just transforming old industries, it's transfor- it, it's completely disrupting existing industries yeah. now. Then you go to the third phase, which is probably last 10, 15 years. And I would actually say, you know, some would say the sharing economy uh, as kind of being that 3.0. Uh, I would also add in, in the middle of it, this whole notion of cloud computing. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, th- those uh, those of us that have been in the industry a little bit of time, uh, 10 years ago, you know, regulators were looking at, you know, information being stored in the cloud and people are questioning whether it, things are secure, uh, authenticated and, you know, and so on and so forth with information up there. But, you know, you and I don't think twice about storing things in the cloud anymore yeah. because it is part of the fabric of everything that we do. So I, I would almost equate that as the third layer, which is, the entire infrastructure around the internet and how we interact with it had completely changed, right? That includes mobile banking and mobile payments and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then now we get into the next phase. Next phase isn't so much about the infrastructure anymore because the last 20 plus years have really built that infrastructure, internet, cloud computing, social platforms, all of those things. Now it's about transactions. Now it's about transacting, not just between people that are beside us or people that are a community, but in a cross-border manner, in a very decentralized manner as well. Because the notion of you know things that are being locked up, economies that are kind of operating only by itself, it is no longer in place. You know, if you think about the 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 money, the future of money in terms of you know how we know it today and how we know it tomorrow, uh, it's going to look very very different. Uh, our kids are not going to look at cash the same way. I mean, they probably don't even understand what cash is, right? So the way they think about it is everything's all digital. Everything is all transferable. And assets all have this value, just like money today. Uh, but it doesn't happen the same way uh, in terms of how people are considering it. But with blockchain, with cryptocurrency, with AI, and all of these new things that are coming down the pipe, that is made available. So if you think about the next phase, which is what we are now, but in the beginning phases of it, we're, we're in that phase where we need to start thinking about transaction, whether it's monetary or information being think about in very different way, but also traced very differently. No longer information or monetary value being locked in a bank or locked in a repository or a database somewhere. All of that is now starting to become legible to everyone, visible by everyone. Think about supply chain examples, right? Why should supply chain information in terms of where that piece of stick or that vegetable that is being produced, why should that be kept within a supermarket chain? Why isn't that made view, viewable by all? So we know exactly where that came from, which country, uh, and if it's a if it's a, a, a cow, you know, what, what vaccines have they taken, so on and so forth. So we can actually have full visibility. That's the world we're going into now. 
and the next generation is expecting information like that to be made available. So I think those of us that are in the industry, you know, we kind of see where all of this is going towards, right? Because the as technology matures, automatically a new layer gets uh, added on top. And some people may think it's adding complexity, but I actually like to think it's acting, acting actually adding more transparency. It's adding yeah. more efficiencies. Um, and it's just uh, up to us to kind of really make that into real use cases and work with our partners to do so uh, and, and, and be able to bring that to the masses. Uh, I, I think that's kind of our mission. I think um, in, in your version where we're talking about, um, you know, web one, two, three, four, or phase mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, um, sure. where, where we are. If you think of like two and three, um, which obviously you can, because you've, you've worked through all of these as someone with an engineering mindset um, and clearly very passionate about the enablement from and the benefits. Then, you know, um, Alibaba as an example, um, mm -hmm. whatever anybody were to say about Alibaba, but, you know, at the core of it, what I found really, um, really brilliant was that it allowed uh, people to have their own enterprise um, because, you know, the infrastructure was in place and the payments were simpler. And so you've got a lot of entrepreneurs who made a brilliant lifestyle out of it, providing a service um, mm -hmm. in the old market store version of that. Right. Um, right. And as you say, as we move to, 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 to version four of that, then uh, you know that will be more likely online with with digital assets, where um, you know it's back to thinking about bartering for value that Correct. isn't just about money. And so, I think where we probably are over the next three years is there's going to be a, a lot of speculation and excitement, and there's going to be certain things that um, will be written about in the press as ludicrous that it's that it's happening, like with some mm -hmm. of the NFT that are selling right now but as we move through into being in the actual phase over the next three to five years then clearly massive benefits will emerge that's so hard to predict right now what those what those are what will this work best for and it could be everything it could just be mm -hmm. some things we we don't really know but your view on that of course is really informed because you've come through the different um, versions of the web and therefore Apple uh, technology and are therefore mm. able to make some pretty informed predictions. So what, what are those for you? Um, you talked about supply chains, that makes complete sense. What are, the, what are the things that, you know, you said for our children, they won't even think about money necessarily. Mm -hmm. Where do you hope this landscape um, makes things more efficient uh, in three or five years? Um, I, I look at probably three things. Uh, I'll, I'll start with kind of the... Uh, the tokenization of assets, whether the digital assets or physical assets. So naturally that lends itself into the NFT conversation. So I think that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is bringing equitable financial services to those that don't have them. And I'll explain a little bit about that, what that means. Uh, and then the third aspect is actually more about education, education to the next generation, but also education for all of us. Because as things evolve, uh, we gotta follow along, and you know uh, sometimes you 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 actually are amazed at how younger generations can pick up new things much faster than you know old dogs like me, uh, and I think that aspect of it is also very important. So maybe I'll kind of cover very briefly on yeah, on all those three things. Uh, I think from a asset perspective, um, the the notion of asset ownership has always been there, right, and it has been there for a very long time. Uh, as soon as people started to own land uh, and you have, you know, the earliest version of it, the eat, and, and you've got ownership of something. And then, of course, you've got ownership of, of you know, kettles and, and so on and so forth. But the, the notion that you can evolve that asset beyond just a piece of paper that says Sean Lee owns something, and there could be multiple ownership, all tracked, all visible, and also that ownership could be fractionalized is something that the current world, while we can do it, is very difficult to do. So if you think about it this way, uh, in Hong Kong here, obviously all of us live in you know, large buildings, right? Tall buildings. And these buildings usually are you know, trillions of dollars in value. Uh, very often there's one large developer that owns it and then they sell it to individually to others. Uh, if, you were to, if we were to say, let's get a thousand of us uh, to co-own into a building, 
you can do it. You know, you can set up a company or set up a trust. We all buy into the trust and then we use the name of the trust and to bind the, the, uh, the, the, the real estate, right? But the issue with that is to come in and out of the trust requires a lot of legal work, a lot of accounting work, and a lot of sometimes regulatory work, right? It is not easy to do. But by tokenizing the value of that real estate and by taking the legal ownership uh, of that and codify that in smart contract, but, but embedding that directly into the tokens that you and I can potentially own, that gives us a lot of flexibility to jump in and out. It also creates a secondary markets that otherwise would be very difficult to do from an individual perspective. Yep. That's the asset type, the, the tokenization of real assets or digital assets for that matter, that is made available now with this technology and the direction that it's going into. So I would like to think that in three, four, you know, five, 10 years time, this notion of tokenizing assets, whatever it is, could be whiskey, could be art. It's going to be a foregone conclusion that we don't even think about anymore. Sean, in that example, um, if you are living in and owning a flat, like in this day and age, then, you know, let's just say that it's, um, it's, it's uh, a one million pound apartment or um, whatever the currency is. Then, then you own that, right? And then there's there's somebody who, who owns the whole building as well. So these are two separate contracts. But broadly speaking, you're paying for, for the place. Once you tokenize it, and if there's secondary markets, and I suppose this would be the type of laws that you put into that, then do you have a situation where somebody might be living in one, but, you know, like for each flat, there could be a thousand people owning it because the token is mm -hmm. bought by so many people. And so, mm -hmm. so that concept is just where I think that it takes quite a lot of perspective to think why why that would be a benefit. So you have half the people who are owning, and then you'd only have renters because the token doesn't buy you a flat, or there's a way to set it up where it can. If you talk talk through that, yeah, there there are multiple types of tokens, right? I mean, a token is a box essentially. You can color the box to do whatever you need it to do, right? Uh, so the notion that there could be tokens that uh, that acts as ownership of the asset, and then there are tokens that give you access. To use the service or use the asset, you know, however it is, uh, these two tokens aren't necessarily the same, right? So, so if you think about it that way, then you can you can create these uh, contractual agreements, but codify it within the smart contract itself, thereby allowing the ownership of the tokens to be able to issue perhaps revenue generating aspects that are being paid for by the folks that are actually living there, right? Yeah. So that notion of the, the economic model. And I, I think I talked about this before, right? Blockchain is a technology. The token creates an economic model. That economic model exists today, but there are many hurdles that you have to go through, both legally and from, a, from an accounting perspective. And I'm not saying blockchain and crypto is gonna solve all of that with a snap of the finger, but it does make things uh, being able to be done a lot easier and a lot more efficiently. And also it cuts out a lot of the intermediaries where they may not necessarily provide too much value, but they're kind of needed to be there because that's how the world works today. But to make things a lot more efficient, you're able to cut that out and directly you know, exchange either value or information uh, via this technology. And I think that's really where we're going. Uh, of course, regulation is always you know, there that we have to be mindful of, right? Uh, and how regulation can catch up to this notion of co-ownership, tokenizing assets, uh, potentially even going into something called DAOs, uh, which is you know the decentralized autonomous or organization, which is almost like a trust, but it, but operated uh, in a decentralized manner. And what that really means from a regulation perspective, that's I don't have a magic bullet in that. <laughs> I think that needs to be evolved. But you could see where it's going, uh, and and I think it's uh, it's very exciting to be going into that that particular space. So so that's one aspect. Um, I think the the other aspects uh, that that I, I I talk about is you know the the notion of uh, education right so that use case that we just talked about uh, it takes some getting used to right because it 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 sounds familiar but it also sounds very different and that educational aspect becomes important because otherwise we're always you know the, the crypto world will always be seen as living in this other 
you know, side in a black box playing in their own game uh, and, and not being able to kind of bring into the real world and, and, and solving real problems. So education becomes important. And that's also part of what we do at the foundation is we work with leading academic institutions around the world. And I emphasize around the world, not just focusing on kind of Western economies and whatnot, and, and really trying to look at real, you know, regional problems, real regional use cases and topics, and work with the brightest man in the region to come up with solutions, leveraging the technologies and some of the, the, the research that go along with it. Because all of that then can become educational, um, uh, you know, material for the students that are studying and for the practitioners in the space to really think about and add on top. So, so that education enablement angle is something that we're driving very hard towards. And I think it's, it's quite, um, quite valuable to think about as the space continues to evolve. Absolutely. Um, so exciting. Um, what could you talk to us about one um, case study that's come out of that initiative? Yes, yes. Yes. So uh, first of all, the, the initiative that we've launched recently is, is what we call the Algorand Center of Excellence. Uh, and it is this program where, where we're partnering with uh, you know, academic institutions and research institutions around the world, multi-year partnership where we give them the, the technical and the financial funding uh, for them to look for unique use cases and research topics uh, that would be applicable to, to their regional needs uh, and be able to build that out uh, along with the student community. Uh, one example of that is our work with the University of Cape Town, uh, where it's a multi-year partnership. Uh, we announced this a little bit earlier before, so I can indeed talk about it. Uh, and and it's a it's a multi-year partnership because we're all we're also looking at the topics of, for example, for the African continent, you know, how would a CBDC work? CBDC being central bank digital currency, you know, how would that work in the African economy? Uh, within Africa and also with outside of Africa, you know, especially in 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 conjunction with global initiatives such as you know China's Belt and Road Initiative and and others, right? So how would that work from a CBDC perspective? That's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is data privacy uh, and data and, and data and and also identities as well. You think about a lot of the communities in in Africa; they don't necessarily have access to you know, um, passports and IDs that we have, right? And thereby, how do they get access to, you know, financial services and, and other types of things? And can blockchain help in that regard? Can cryptocurrency enables and facilitate some of those transactional aspects? Those are some of the research topics that they're they're going into. But then that's only one one part of the, the kind of tri triangular thing that we have going on with them, the research aspect. And then taking some of the results of the research, then working with, uh, the student communities, the startup community to actually build out, uh, conceptualize it, make it, make it into reality. Uh, and then also then also setting up an African innovation hub to then attract the bright minds of, of next generation and taking those research and taking the MVPs and the pilot and then potentially launching them, launching them out, not just in South Africa, but, uh, but perhaps in the broader kind of African continent. So that's an example of a, a partnership that we have formed with the University of Cape Town. Uh, obviously, I, I think uh, we launched the, the campaign uh, about three weeks ago. We just closed the, uh, the, the application process. There are over 130 institutions around the world that have uh, sent in their letter of intent. Uh, in terms of applying. So uh, we're very excited about where this is going uh, because I think, look, you can talk about crypto assets, speculations, trading up and down, all of that. And, you know, I could talk about that too. But what gets me really excited is where is this all going? What is it going to do for the next generation? We talk about the environmental aspects. I also like to, to focus on the social aspects and the, the, the kind of the, the, the intellectual aspect as well, because I think that has a much longer term sustainability to it rather than just looking at you know prices going up and down you know it's fascinating yeah. uh but it's only it's very short term yeah and the example you give in um cape town sean is uh is you know it's got a humanitarian element to it if if um i have a friend who, who um set up a company um five years ago or so where they were trying to literally just get the postcode system into parts of nigeria mm -hmm. But because it wasn't there, you couldn't have basic things we'd assume like deliveries. And uh, so it's incredibly um, underdeveloped in, 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 uh, in that. And it's very easy to be in Hong Kong or London and not even think about these type of things, right? That's right. And, 
So That's to right. go there, engage the actual community who are intellectually curious um, and for it to then have a purpose and an outcome that, um, you know, develops uh, infrastructure and, and a variety of things is um, it puts you into a place where this is such a such a fulfilling I think, like you said, the prices, the speculation, all these things are the technology. It's all, it's all obviously all part of it. But um, yeah, to actually know that it's driving towards uh, hopefully innovating and making things more efficient and improving uh, people's circumstances is um, is wonderful. Um, what yeah. um, what um, would be uh, really interesting to understand also is you know just a little bit more about you personally. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you come across incredibly uh, eloquent, and uh, obviously have a lot of experience from um, you know different large companies. But whilst you're doing all of this, you know, which obviously takes a lot of time, uh, tell us a little bit about Sean Lee, the man. You know, what's your situation? Mm -hmm. What um, outside of work um, do you spend your time on? Uh, I I am a world traveler. Uh, I love traveling. I have done businesses in over twenty countries. Uh, and, and, you know, I've lived in obviously North America uh, and then now I'm in Asia, but I spent a bunch of time in the Middle East, Europe, and, and I love traveling. Uh, to, to me, the notion of traveling isn't just going to different sites and snapping pictures and, you know, proving that I've been there. Uh, that is interesting, you know, for sure. I do have a world map of places that I've gone to. Uh, but, but I think it's really the, the diversity of the people that I enjoy the most. Uh, the culture, uh, the business practices, and and what are you know are people there in a particular part of the world that are really as how potentially sometimes mass media portrays it? Uh, that's what fascinates me the most. So so as a I guess as a person outside of work, uh, you know I do a lot of reading. Uh, I do a lot of um, uh, you know you know searching online and, and looking for information that really can bring a different side. Uh, to uh, of the world that that I don't know that I want to appreciate that I want to make as part of you know kind of the repertoire in terms of how I run a company but also how I interact with our global partners from around the world as well uh, that part of it you know is quite excited to me and and uh, I've always you know of course before the pandemic I, I literally would be on a plane every week you know flying to different parts of the world and doing business and whatnot uh, so the last two years have been you know quite challenging but, you know, look, at the same time, it opens up a lot of opportunities, right? Uh, you and I are talking over Zoom right now, uh, doing an interview and doing a podcast. And uh, this is something that, yes, we could have done before, but, you know, now we don't even think twice about doing it. It's just, you know, let's set up a meeting and jump on the phone and, and let's go do it. So it's also got a lot of um, a lot of possibility there as well. So I think that aspect of it is something that I am very proud of and, and love to do and hopefully when things open back up, I'll I'll continue to do as well. Uh, so that that's one aspect. Um, I can see I can see other... um, boxing mm -hmm. gloves in the background there. Yes, yes, uh, boxing glove. Uh, there's a story to it. Uh, I don't box. I don't box. Uh, I I do do some tai chi's and here and there, but not 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 martial arts. Uh, that is actually an award. Uh, it is an award. It is called a knockout award. I, I, I don't know if you can see the word knockout oh, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was from a, a company that I used to work in uh, in New York. And if you're able to beat out uh, one of the competitors, then the, the president or CEO would send you an award. And there are only a few of these uh, made every year. And in, this is back in 2005 now uh, that I won that award. But I've always treasured it because it... It shows that, you know, here's an interesting aspect, right? Maybe it shows a little bit of the philosophical side of me. We always think about boxing as this hard sport, right? You're hitting your opponent. Uh, but if you touch the boxing glove, it's actually very soft. There's a there's a certain notion of yin, yin and yang to it. And I think that that is, I, I can relate a lot of things that happen around us to towards that as well. There's a hard side, there's a soft side, there's a positive side, there's a not so positive side, coin of two, uh, coin of two sides, right? It depends on how you look at it. So, you know, I bring it here with me because one, uh, I want to remind myself that every day we are in a competing, you know, a competitive world. Uh, this industry moves very, very fast. Uh, so I remind myself that. But at the same time, you also need to give it a white glove approach. I know it's a red glove, but, you know, a, a, a white glove approach to kind of treat your partners 
treat your community members because you want to let them feel welcomed as well. Uh, so that when they when they're getting on the journey along with you, uh, they feel like they're part of the family. And and that's really what this is. Um, I think what we're trying to drive here. So you you tend you, you tend to internalize and debate things philosophically and look at both sides and then come out of it with an opinion. I love that. Is there a particular book you've read recently you'd recommend to the audience? Um, I, I would say a book that I have reread recently, um, and that is The Art of War. The Art of War. Yeah. Uh, I read that when I was much younger. Uh, I read, you know, uh, anime versions of it. I read the actual literary, you know, the, the, the literal uh, version of it. I reread it recently uh, because, you know, we, uh, many people say, you know, business is a, a battle. Right, uh, industries are competing so fast, and you gotta find different ways to attack. And you you always need to you know be be able to identify that strategy very, uh, you know very very proactively. Uh, but what a lot of people don't realize is you know especially in the in the book The Art of War, uh, you know the the author of, often say the best wars are actually won without a bullet or yeah. you know in the old days an arrow. Right, if you can find a way to resolve the conflict or an issue or a hurdle uh, without going full frontal assault. That actually involves a lot more IQ and EQ yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. And to take a step back and actually think about what's the best way, win-win, you know, uh, less conflict, and, and be able to solve the problem. Uh, that's something that I, that's why I picked up the book again, trying to reread it, because I wanted to really understand the essence of these great generals and their war strategies but it's not always about attacking. It's also not always about defending. A lot of it is actually around diplomacy. And you think about the business that we're in now as a foundation, we're building ecosystems and, and developing communities around the world. It's actually a lot more about diplomacy yeah, absolutely. Uh, than, um, than anything it's, else. It's, um, it's a brilliant book. I think I've returned to it 20 times, um, maybe more. Um, and uh yeah, I always feel very calm when I read it. Uh, it's, mm. it's, it's because it, I think what it gets across to me, uh, along with what you said, is a lot of it's in the preparation. You know, you, you, the person who's going to turn up and be most prepared uh, is probably going to probably um, benefit. And um, I recently uh, have been reading um, from uh, Anderson Horowitz, uh, A16Z, uh, Ben Horowitz's mm. second book, um, right. which uh, if you haven't read it um, I recommend if you're if you're thinking through those type of things because um, mm -hmm. he very much is using previous um, leaders of territories um, but what he's actually showing is not so much like here was the strategic uh, strategic moves on on on, on, uh, on battles he talks about it from a cultural perspective and mm -hmm. so by making um, various elements of the culture shockingly strong um, it can affect the whole culture of how people behave because most people behave based on incentives. Uh, and I found that incredibly enlightening. Um, oh, if you haven't read it, I'll send you, um, I'll send you a copy. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, so you're on the Searching for Mana show, Sean, and we've got a good idea. Um, but I'd like to ask you the question, you know what Mana is? And just to explain, you know, from gaming, it's the, um, it's the magic. So you have your power bar um and then you also have your mana and mana could be mm -hmm. how you use your sword effectively or uh, how you mm -hmm. can cast a spell so really what would you say throughout your career and and now also is your mana mm -hmm. uh i don't know if i have a mana i i i you know the i think the, the i i use the word mortal m-o-t-t-o right my motto has always been continue to learn because this world is, is spinning faster than we ever is. I know physically it's not, but things are happening so much faster now mm. and you always have to keep up because if you don't, the industry or, or, or those, you know, things are going to just pass you right by. And so my motto has always been continue to learn, but there's so much information being bombarded at us now. So you also got to be smart about what you pick yep. 
to continue to learn. You kind of have a certain direction. Uh, I do a fair amount of mentoring, you know, for for students, and and sometimes I I I guess lectures in universities, and I share with the student that, you know, don't get overwhelmed with this world, because you may feel like, you know, a lot of people like to say, oh, the world now is very different, and there's so much being passed at you. Well, I'd like to think 20 years ago, there was just as much being passed to them, to that generation. Like we look back and we say, oh, that's nothing. But because we have the benefit of hindsight, 20 years ago, that was the case. 50 years ago, that was the case, right? Um, so so I think to 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 us, uh, whether we're in the industry, whether we're getting into an industry, you know, as a, as a next generation, I think this notion of never stop learning, whatever subject that you're interested in, whatever that you show passion in, that's that's always what I live by. Um, and and I, you know, if I were to say, you know, if there's something that I continue to seek, uh, that would be, what am I going to learn that I can improve upon that will take me to the next phase? And that doesn't have to be the career. Uh, it could be just affecting people around me, the community around me, the students that I'm interacting with. What can I upgrade myself so that I could do more for society? And, 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 and Sean, how do, you, just, how, do you, yeah. how do you know... And this is a very nuanced question, but how do you know where to filter the no to? Do you have an example recently of, as you say, there's so many interesting things coming. So for mm. instance, in the Mana Search core business, which is headhunting mm. and recruitment, um, right. we very intentionally uh, set out four years ago, very intentionally said, we're just going to focus on fintech because um, I knew the challenge of being great at what is quite an incumbent industry where you know there's old networks and bringing headhunting and recruitment together was mm -hmm. going to be challenging enough. So putting ourselves into a box of a emerging, booming industry sector was, I think, a wise decision. And then mm -hmm. you have these situations that present themselves to you where there are the, the borderlines of fintech. So you could look at um, a lot of payments and e-commerce now, um, and, actually, and actually really um, a lot of platform businesses where now a lot of stuff has an, a fintech element to it. Mm -hmm. that's fintech if you go into the blockchain and crypto literally mm -hmm. the most novel things you could suddenly define as fintech because it mm -hmm. it, it represents the whole universe so right. you can suddenly find yourself working on just the thing that feels the furthest away from finance possible but it's cool because it's emerging and i believe over the next seven years that is the right strategic play that was where we we, we leaned into it and we're like, we're, we're going to mm. try and be as good as possible in that space. Mm -hmm. But outside in the traditional industries, we'll stay here. So there's some type mm. of filtering that I did. And then obviously in the things that are in your box and you're just trying to learn as much as possible. How are you possibly drawing the lines there as well? Uh, well, I, I think uh, inevitably, you know, technology will find its footing. And technology, like I mentioned before, at some point, it's going to be become, you know, an everyday fabric of our lives. So then what that means is we've got to almost look out a little bit and think about what life is going to be like in 10, 20, 30 years time, right? Uh, a lot of the, the the environmentalists are doing the same thing, right? So I think that uh, the technology side of things, uh, we got to look at it in that perspective as well. And if you think about you know, living in a society where it's increasingly cashless and and borders are increasingly being blurred um, and or institutions are increasingly looking just like one another without really true differentiating factors, uh, then then you, you, you'd like to think that there are going to be projects, interesting projects that we can work with uh, that can really differentiate themselves in that, you know, in that in that mode. Uh, whether it is going into offering some equitable financial services, you know, financial inclusion use cases where, you know, it's targeting not you and I, but targeting the 1.7 billion people that have no access to financial services. Yeah. They are just as human beings as you and I. Uh, why shouldn't they get access to these services via newer technologies? So very often we... You know, if we and me uh, personally, I, I look for projects that really have that have that longer term social impact, because you know speculations, you know jumps and up and downs, bubbles can form very quickly, but long term effects are very hard to develop. And I like to think the longer term, you know, social impact projects really are able to take the best of the technology, best of the business models, and best of what has already happened 
but then simplify it so that those that have never experienced it before can get on board very easily. And and I think that is the goal uh, of where a lot of you know what we're seeing is leaning towards. Um, and you know, I I know I'm not giving you a specific answer because I don't have a specific answer for you. But I think it's more directional in terms of where that is. Um, and um, yeah, it's a, that that's what we work on every day. Yeah, no, that comes across that um, a lot of what you're looking for is um, is there to be a, a medium and long term outcome and purpose to it, which I love. Um, you, you I, that's probably answered what my final question typically is, mm. which is. You know, where do you where do you hope this foundation um, is, and what might it look like in ten years? But if you want to give a particular um, answer to that as well, please. Uh, okay. Well, this this one I I actually can't uh, exactly finger. Here here's the reason why. Uh, you you if you think about uh, many organizations that are similar to ours, and not necessarily in the crypto space, but operate as a foundation. Uh, many of us operate as a nonprofit, which we do. And at the same time, our job is to build ecosystems, uh, build communities, and so on and so forth, which we'll continue to do. But because of the notion of where this blockchain crypto industry is going, would we, in 10 years' time, continue to operate as a foundation that are managed by a team? Or would it evolve into a DAO-like structure, a decentralized you know, organization? somewhat autonomous i i i still question whether you know can it be completely autonomous everything you know driven by code or would you still need a human element i like to think there's a human element still in there uh, but are we going to evolve into that kind of a structure rather than a a company you know an organization's running and facilitating which we're doing and then can it facilitate itself and that's the question that you know myself and my leadership team and also my board is constantly thinking. You know, yes, it's 10 years from now, five years from now, whatever it is, and even five years in the crypto industry is a lifetime. Uh, so that's a long time away. But you got to think about that, right? If we yeah. want to be one of the protocols that have the, la the long-lasting power that are being used in corporations, in institutions, public sector, private sector, then you got to have that longer-term vision. And that is something that we're actively thinking about, you know, is it, do we still operate as a foundation as we do today, facilitating, supporting, continue to innovate, uh, or do we do that not via uh, a direct staff, but via a kind of very decentralized organization in that regard? That is a question. So I don't have an answer for you, yeah. um, but it is something that we are constantly debating, talking, consulting with others, trying to see uh, whether that needs to be a a a, a strategic kind of directional um, approach that we need to apply to what we do, um, uh, but yeah, but really fascinating to try and think through that, and that's a whole um, different conversation. Um, but uh, but I, I've worked in um, innovative spaces as a headhunter for for nearly twenty years now, and it seems like you know where when you look back and with hindsight it tends to be you know when you've just walked into the the sea and you're just about losing your feet uh is 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 the space to play in um you know if, if, if you're standing on the beach then you, you're gonna get eradicated if you go right out into the ocean then mm -hmm. there is you know a millionth of a chance that perhaps something might happen but more likely it's just when you start losing your footing um, mm -hmm. and so I feel like we're starting to get there now with your space. Now, how that looks in five years, as you say, which is a lifetime away, I don't know, but of course, thinking it through and trying to get that right strategically is, is, is fascinating. And I, I, I wonder if what it will end up as, because it would be possibly the right thing for this space is, you know, almost like you said, you go and give lectures at, um, mm -hmm. Um, educational institutes and you start having ambassadors and people who are influencers in these ecosystems but it is all you know governed and controlled via the algorithm um mm -hmm. might, might like i said long debate might be how it ends up in a really nice situation but uh but maybe not maybe it will i it definitely is going to need human attention and focus mm -hmm. on it there's no question about that it's just how it actually yeah. is um how how it ends up but, um, you know, 
for the next few years, you guys have got a clear mandate to just uh, push this out and uh, make it as successful as possible, which you're doing a brilliant job of. So, um, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show and being so open and talking us through this exciting um, work that you're doing. And I wish you all the best. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, you know seeing the show, but also seeing new guests that you invite on the show and the various different ideas that they're going to share with the, the community. I look forward to that as well. Thank you, Sean. Take care. Bye.